Welcome to the Imperfect Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Neal, your host. Today we have Josh Lassiter from ECSU. Uh, Josh is doing a fantastic job at ECSU, helping to lead the financial department there and many other things. You'll learn a lot from Josh. He's got a great story and a very interesting interview. So sit back today and relax and learn from Josh. Before we get to the interview with Josh, we have Juan Ortiz coming up uh, next week on the podcast. Juan is the owner and operator of our local Chick-fil-A here in Elizabeth City. So I know you will enjoy that interview as well. One more thing, please go by iTunes and give us a five-star rating. You can also leave comments and questions. We read each one. We want to learn how to get better. We want to learn from you, know what you're thinking. So please go by, give us a rating, and leave some comments and questions. All right, let's get to the interview with Josh Lassiter from ECSU. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you are. There's a lot of people listening who are not familiar with who you are, what you do, what you're about. So we'll get into some of that in just a minute. But let's go back a little bit to your family. Tell us a little bit about yourself uh, so people can kind of get an idea of who Josh is. So your family, where you grew up, just give us a little background. Sure. So I um, I grew up here in in this area, uh, the town of Hertford, so about 20 minutes west of Elizabeth City where, where Forest Park Church is located. Um. I grew up as one of three children, the oldest of three children. Uh, Neither of my parents went to college, so technically I'm a first-generation college student, but it never really felt that way. You know, I I grew up with um, hardworking parents who made sure I had everything I needed and and most of what I wanted and gave me every opportunity in life to succeed. Um, Also grew up with uh, first cousins who felt like brothers and sisters, you know, I've really, I have a lot of family in the area. I've got aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents still living. Um, probably 50 to 60 family members who are first cousin, aunt, and uncle or closer within a 30-mile radius. So family's always been an extremely important part of my life. Um, I grew up, I guess, with a, a typical Southern, Southern Christian upbringing, I guess is the way you'd describe it, in that I went to a small town, traditional church. When I was a young kid, for as many Sundays as I can remember, we after church we spent it around grandma's table with extended family eating lunch. Um, grew up again in Hertford, Perquimans County. Uh, went to Perquimans County High School. was a was a three sport athlete in high school. Graduated. Now what what did you play? I played uh, basketball, baseball, and football. Okay, so you're um, busy. Busy, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, all day, every day was school, and then after school was another two to three hours of practice or a game. Right. I didn't know any, any other schedule uh, after seventh grade other than being in school all day and being at practice all night, yeah. pretty much. Um, but, but it was what I loved to do. I mean, because most of the time I was spending time with my friends or with my cousins who were on those same teams and, and, and just had a ball. Um, so that's a little bit of a flavor of kind of my yeah. upgrade, up, upbringing. You had a great childhood. Great. Yeah. Yep. Um, in, in, in all sense of the word. Yeah. Um, now, you said that you were first generation going to college. So yep. what, what did most of your family uh, pursue? Were they in farming? They owned their own business stores? What did they do? So uh, both of my grandfathers were farmers, okay. uh, are farmers. One of those, one of my grandfathers has passed. The other is still living and still actively farming. Wakes up at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. every morning, um, getting tractors ready, getting grain loaded, making sure his his crew is ready to go out and work. Um, one of the hardest working guys I've ever ever known. So both of my grandfathers are farmers. My uh, mother worked in a law office as a paralegal for a little while, and then when me and my brother and sister went to school. She uh, got a job with the school system so she could be closer to us, mm-hmm. keep her eye on us, make sure we got the teachers that she wanted us to have, things like that. Right. So that's the type of mom she was. Yeah. So um, that was kind of that's kind of the career path for those folks. My, my father uh, worked at Norfolk Naval Shipyard for 33 years, just recently retired in the last year, but started off as a pipe fitter on one of the ships. He, you know, he tells me making four dollars and ninety nine cent an hour. And worked his up to being worked his way up to being responsible for all the uh, maintenance planning for twelve aircraft carriers wow. when he retired. So, 
did really well for himself, con especially considering the lack of education. When his job gets filled now, it'll get filled with someone who has a master's degree in yeah. engineering and, and that sort of thing. So That's amazing. So you went to ECU, is that right? No, I went to North, North Carolina State. North Carolina State, that's right. That's Wolfpack, exactly right. let's yeah. not get that one I'm twisted. I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> yeah. I messed yeah. that up. Go should pack. start the whole thing over again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to recover. <laughs> sorry. That's right. So you went to state, and uh, you got your undergraduate degree in... Accounting. Accounting. And sure. you went and got your MBA, too. Correct? Right. So all I, from state? Is all right? from state. Okay. Uh, three degrees from state. They've got all yeah. my heart, soul, and yeah. money. So And your money. Yep. <laughs> and my money. Right. So, uh, yeah. They, now, why uh, did, that's very interesting. You grew up in, the, in a small town, uh, the heritage of farming, and obviously your dad you know, did not get the formal education, although yep. very intelligent, very successful. Why did you pursue business? What was going on? Was that something you always uh, wanted to do, maybe as a, a young child, or did you find that out after you went to school and thought, hey, I really have a knack for this? How did that come to be? Well, um, the concept of, of math in numbers and finance always came very, very naturally to me. It was something that um, just clicked from a very young age. It, it made sense to me very early how, how numbers worked together. Um, I can tell you the story of my great-grandfather, who, who's no longer living, but lived up until I was, you know, 10 years old. When I was four or five years old, I would spend Sunday afternoon sometime with him trading quarters for pennies and dimes for nickels, trying to understand mm -hmm. that, um, you know, 10 pennies weren't, weren't worth the one quarter if we went down to the store and I got ready to use them. And so he, he taught me in that way. Um, at a very young age, and, and it was just something I was drawn to. And with with kind of math and financing just being natural, um, I kind of was drawn to that career path, drawn to that degree path, because it was a strength of mine. It was something that was just, just very natural to me. Yeah, so, so you, you graduated with your under, uh, undergrad, went in and get your, your master's. Now you have two, is that right? That's right. So um, Normally these days, if you're um, going to get a master's in accounting, you stay one year after your undergrad and just do it. You mm -hmm. don't go to work. You, you Right after right. your undergrad, you go right into it. That gives you the minimum number of education requirements to sit for the CPA exam, okay. which is more than just a bachelor's degree. So master's in accounting right after the undergrad, set for the CPA exam while working for a big firm, passed that a couple years after I graduated. I didn't go back for the MBA until I started working at Elizabeth City, so I went to, for the MBA um, about five years, five or six years after I graduated. And you finished that two, a couple years ago? 2015. At 2015. Great. Yes, sir. All right, so now you're at Elizabeth City State University. Right. And what is your position there? What exactly is your job title and your responsibilities? What are you hired to do there? Sure. So I'm the, uh, I'm the Vice Chancellor for Business and Finance. That's my official title. I've been in that role for almost four years, okay. but I've been at the university for uh, more than seven years. All right. So I held I held some uh, other director roles previously while at the college, but, but the position I'm in now is vice chancellor for business and finance. And so that's a leadership position that sits on the chancellor's cabinet. Mm -hmm. I report directly to the chancellor for the university, and I'm responsible for a range of functions that include budget and planning, um, your controller's office, which is your accounting of, of your resources and working with auditors to make sure that, that those things have been spent correctly, um, your purchasing and procurement department, um, something that you might not typically associate with a, a vice chancellor for business and finance position is I'm also responsible for all facilities management. Mm -hmm. So managing facilities, managing custodial services, managing grounds, managing um, the bookstore, the cafeteria, yeah, all, those all, all those so all those auxiliary functions. All that falls under your responsibility. Yes, sir. Okay. And, and I by no means am um, the direct supervisor of those. You know, I have leaders that report mm -hmm. to me that are responsible for those units, but all of that falls under my purview. I'm responsible for it. I'm accountable for whether those units are succeeding or failing. Now, since you have been at ECSU, a lot of changes have occurred. Sure. I mean, there's been, you know, staff changes and chancellor changes. And right. you've, you've stayed through all of these, these last seven years and watched all the changes. Has right. that been pretty challenging to just – I'm sure every time a chancellor comes in, you know, somebody else takes a new position, you've got right. to get acclimated to the new person. Right. How have you kind of balanced that? Well, I think, I think the main thing is um, – well, first of all, it is challenging, yeah. right? It is, um, without a doubt, 
to some degree disruptive to the organization be, just because it, it's hard to gel around a set of priorities you know, for a leadership team if, if the priorities change as leaders change. So if you have three or four leaders in a four or five year time period and each one comes in with, with new priorities and what they think is important, then the rest of the university has to pivot to to kind of move in that direction. And, and, and doing that as often as we've kind of had to the last three or four years is is difficult. Um, I think the way you balance that is, is one, being really comfortable and confident in what you're responsible for and continuing to do that well. You know, there's some, there are baseline functions that have to continue. There are baseline services that have to be offered and, and they won't change uh, with a chancellor. You know, a chancellor is going to come in and change strategic priorities, strategic direction of the university, but that that doesn't change the fact that, that um, buildings need to be cleaned, that students need to be served, that the cafeteria needs to serve food in a safe environment, in a healthy environment. So um, just really, really owning what you're responsible for and continuing to do it well, to, you know, despite the turnover is, uh, I, th- I think, been very important. Yeah, so that would be the advice you would give to someone because no doubt there's someone listening who's right in the middle of a change. Right. You know, they're not the leader of the entire organization. Right. They work at a hospital. They're at a... In an office setting, and the right. office manager has recently been changed, or the president's come in, right. and each person who comes in, like you said, it's right. somewhat disruptive. I don't right. think the, the, the new person is attempting to disrupt everything, right. but just having a new personality you know, right. at, at the helm changes the flavor, the feel, the culture of the institution. Right. So your advice to, to, to that person is maintain what you're doing, do it well, right. know your job, be confident, and just, just keep moving forward while these changes happen and some of that will eventually level out. Right. And and don't be the uh you know, don't be one of the fires that that leader has to come in and put out. Be be stability for them. Be something that they know when they lay down at night that they don't have to worry yeah. about. Now, that. how would you define a fire? You know, is that the complainer, <laughs> the person who's just, you know, uh, criticizing the new the new leadership? Well, well it, so we're lucky in that this most recent transition is one that uh, is of choice. You know, it's one where uh, Chancellor Conway is retiring. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's of his own volition to to step down after 45 years wow. of state service, and and we're, we've got an exciting new leader coming in. We've had a really good transition period where they've worked together for a few months, and so this transition is much different than the last three or four that okay. I've experienced. So. Um, not as much risk, not as much to worry about this time, but in previous times, the leadership change was coming as a result of something being, you know, something needing to be fixed or something um, that needed some acute attention of a leader. And, and you know, for Elizabeth City State, that's been enrollment management and admissions for the past few years and, and solving the issue of how do we get more students in. Um, back five or six years ago it dated back to some some issues related to public safety and and the police department and things like that so there's always probably uh something that you'd categorize as a fire that that leader is going to come in and have most of their attention on Uh, and i think the best thing you can do as a leader reporting to them is allow them to have their attention on what 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 needs it and and not have their attention on something that should and could be stable. Don't be a reason that right. that leader has to drain more energy. Time, resources, energy, right, right, because they're coming in for a reason, and it's not you. Don't let it be you. Right. Don't don't be part of that, yeah. that problem. That's great advice. Yeah. What is it What is it like behind the scenes, Josh? I mean, I can imagine people would see your title, your picture, you know, and, wow, what a great title, and to be in the finances and working at a university level, et cetera. But I know what it's like, you know, to – there's the myth and then there's the reality you right know, there's the image and then there's the stuff behind the scenes so you're dealing with money you're dealing with budgeting you're dealing right. with scholarships and or or um, excuse me um uh getting money pulled down right you know federal funding front, federal funding etc yeah. so paperwork yeah. and all that so what does it what does it feel like behind the scenes what's the reality versus the myth well i think the myth is is some of what you described right so the myth is uh the accountant right the number cruncher the um Oh, you're a CPA. You must not know how to do taxes, which is the the bane of a CPA's yeah. existence. When you tell <laughs> someone that, and they they um, respond that way, so um, you know, I think I think it's easy to assume that a job like mine is very transactional. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
it's it's actually pretty far from that. So um, certainly some of the people who report to me, their job's very transactional. But for me, uh, the biggest and most important parts of my job involve strategy, involve judgment, involve kind of operating in the gray space when, when we don't have a clear black or white answer on whether or not we should do this or whether or not we can do this. Who's going to make the call? Now give me an example of what you mean. So if... Um, all right, here's, here's, here's actually a pretty good example. Um, with the recent enrollment trends uh, at Elizabeth City, we've dropped below an enrollment level. Uh, ideally, uh, the, the fee-supported units like student activities on campus would operate with a balanced budget, meaning you don't spend more than you bring in. With the current enrollment level, if we, if we push that unit inside of a balanced budget, um, we'd be forcing decisions to to stop offering certain services that are essential that if we don't offer them, we probably would, would reflect, uh, affect the t- retention for the current student body. We'd certainly affect their uh, student experience in a negative way. And so making the judgment call to leave spending at a level that exceeds the amount that we're bringing in annually means we're living out of our savings for um, for a short-term period of time, so we're we're making we're making kind of a an educated bet that the the turnaround strategies that we're putting in place are going to work because it's not a sustainable strategy to operate out of your reserves or operate out of your savings account, if you will. But but not to do so in the current situation um, might negatively affect what the the very problem we're trying to fix. And so making that call, deciding what's right, deciding how much, how much do we eat into savings per year? We're sitting on X number of reserve. How much can we afford to go into that each year where we're not getting into a a risky situation that we can't get out of? So basically you're you're deciding, do we continue to spend, you know, more money than we're bringing in to maintain a high level of service service to the students? Because we know if we drop below this service line, we're not going to recruit any more students or, the or, students or retain leave. the ones right. we have. Exactly. Right. So you're not bringing in enough to really provide the high level of services for the students. Right. But you can't drop those services. Right. So you have to make a decision. Take do a we calculated risk. Right. Do we continue to, to dip into the savings and yep. keep the service level high, right. knowing that we'll keep the students, or at least most of them, yep. and probably recruit more? Right. So over time, right. we're, we're planting these seeds, and over time, the harvest will come later right. with additional students and quality exactly. service and Etc. So, and, but what's so the that's right? something that's behind the scenes. You're always working on. It's right. not just and, take a dollar in, spend a dollar. Right. Sometimes it's take a dollar in and spend two dollars, knowing that eventually you'll get three. Right. Yeah. But leadership's got to make that call. That's you know, exactly what, what's right. the right number? And how and, do you make that? Is there a team of people? Do you sit in a room with one other person? So, how does that work? It really just depends on the decision that you're making. Certainly, certainly for the one that I described, it would be a kind of a joint discussion between the chancellor and I and the vice chancellor for student affairs. So I have a counterpart, a colleague at my level who's just responsible for student affairs. So student affairs at the university looks like um, student clubs and organizations. It looks like housing, um, you know, residence life. It looks like your your campus center, your student center, your the place where students go to hang out and play pool and, and bowling, and that's so being responsible. It looks like career services. It looks like um, counseling and testing. So, student affairs has a mission that they have to fulfill underneath the big umbrella of the university's mission. And if you um, the fina- the amount of financing they have to accomplish that can put them in a spot where they can't accomplish that mission. And so really um, really having a tough discussion about, okay, here's the calculated risk we are all taking because we're gonna we're gonna invest in this area knowing that we need a turnaround, but this do- this strategy can't last. It's unsustainable. We might can only do this for three to five years. Mm-hmm. So um, Having the respect for each other as colleagues to know that I'm I'm making a bet on them that if that bet if that bet bet fails someone's going to be looking at me asking me why why I um, let a reserve go you know head south. Now do you enjoy that kind of leadership? Love it, love it. So that's yeah. that's thrilling and exciting that yeah. that you're in that crisis moment making those decisions. Well, just just 
not so much that it's crisis, although I don't mind it, but but really thinking through what we're trying to do and, and not just not just following the same. The old adage would be have a balanced budget right. of all you know, regardless of all circumstances, force them into a balanced budget. The economics of where our university is won't allow that right now. We, I think we'd be failing on our overall strategy to grow if we forced into forced ourselves into risk the basic is required. model. Yep. You've got to do some risk. So you yep. like the, the aspect of risk. Yep, and, yep. and, and analyzing what, what yep. risk is appropriate to take and, and why. And now, I'm sure that you wrestle through, or at least I think you will wrestle through the, you know as well as I do as a, uh, you know, as a leader in, in making these risks. If the risk works, you know, you, right. you take the risk and it's successful, right. then you get, of course, all the credit. If the risk is taken and it fails, sometimes you get all the sure. blame. And there's many other things at play. It's not just you, but that's part of being a leader. Right. You take the risk. It works. Awesome. You did a great job. You take the risk. doesn't work. Then, of course, you know, you lost. So a lot of uh, – you lose. So a lot of people we, we watch maybe who get fired or removed from a position. Right. And we think, well, they must have been a terrible CEO or they must have been a terrible chancellor. And sometimes that's not true. Right. They, they did the best they could with what they had, took a risk, and it didn't work. Right. In another situation, they could have taken the exact same risk. Right. Maybe with a different player, a few different people involved, and it could have worked greatly. Right. And they would have been considered brilliant. That's right. Yeah, so it's a fine line sometimes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's, um, I think the important thing when you are taking risk, especially, you know, kind of large strategic decisions is to, um, two things. One, make sure you document really well why you did what you did. Because if you take a risk and if it fails and there's no trail of evidence mm-hmm. as to why someone would have made that decision or could have made that decision, you're going to look even worse yeah. uh, than, than you could have. But if someone goes back behind what you decided and looks at all the facts and say, hey, given all the circumstances, I, I probably would have done the same thing and it just didn't work out, that's a little bit better position to be yeah. in. But also um, communicating as practically and as effectively as you can to the teams that are part of the risk that you take part of the strategy that you're taking on um so if we're in the example that i gave student affairs and the budget office both need to be keenly the staff in those areas need to be keenly aware of the investment we're making in them um that should drive motivation for the staff to know hey we could have a budget that's two to three hundred thousand dollars less than it is right now but they're investing in us to to turn this thing around um, and so then, then they sent some sort of ownership in that, um, whether they were part of the decision or not, and some of them will be part of the decision, letting them know the context of the decision and kind of what's at stake, I, th- I think is, um, I think is an effective. So be as transparent as possible, not only yep. with your team, yep. uh, but also with, uh, the professors, the, the other yep. leaders who are not necessarily direct reports to you and right. also even the student body, right? Somehow to let them know, Hey, we're looking out for you. We're doing the. We're doing our absolute best to take this to the next level. The, it's going to require some risk, yeah. and, but we're all in this. We, got, we all have skin in the game. That's right. You know, we're all putting something out here because we believe in you, and we believe in the future. That's, That's right. That sense of just vision, and the future is better than yesterday. That's and, right. You know, it's that funny raises you men- that sense of uh, purpose and excitement. That's right, and it's funny you should mention that. So uh, I have a meeting later today with the president of the Student Government Association to go over exactly what we've just talked about here in the example. So the way you mentioned communicating to students, the way we'll do that is through their formal elected officials. You know, we'll, we'll sit down with their leadership, talk with their leadership uh, as much as we can about the situation and what's going on so that they know. And then our expectation is that the Student Government Association will then communicate with the student body at large um, in, a me- in a means that's effective and appropriate. Yeah, that's great. Josh, would you, would you say that, it, that there are many times you know, decisions are made behind closed doors in an official meeting. I don't, I'm not talking about ECSU. I'm just right. talking about in, in companies, mm-hmm. churches, any other organizations. And these risks are taken. You know, they're, they're doing the best they can to put their heads together, crunch numbers, mm-hmm. you know, work through the data, et cetera. They take what they see as a calculated risk, and it is a calculated risk, but they do not communicate it to the people below them and the appearance from the student's perspective or from the guy that's you know down the right the, the, you know the the uh, flow chart to the uh, toward the bottom 
right. just sees crazy decisions being made. And that can create that water cooler, you know, around the water cooler talk. They're wasting money. They right. don't know what they're doing. Right. And if they would have just taken a couple of more steps and communicated right. to the people, I think there could have been more buy-in. Would yep. you agree? I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yep. And and um, there's different ways to communicate uh, what you want to get across to the organization or to w- whatever unit you're making decisions for or on behalf of. Um, I, I think most of the time, you know, there's kind of a cascading effect of communicating what's appropriate to your direct reports and then just making sure that they plan to have a similar meeting with who reports to them. Other other types of things can be communicated with an all call, you know, kind of an all hands call. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think relationships are important. So I think sometimes, especially big decisions, hit people cold if you bring everybody into a big room and say, "Hey, here's what we're doing." Mm-hmm. You know that um, I don't know that that always works the best because there's a level of disconnect if if there's two managers between me and someone and we don't interact super often then hearing something from me cold um, could have the same effect you're describing of hey this has been decided without me whereas if it's passed down through leadership and ends up being communicated um, to that staff level person from someone that they've established a level of trust with a leader a supervisor that they've established a level of trust with who, who knows how to communicate most effectively with their own employee. Um, I so, think, there, so I'm hearing you say there can be a, a, a great disconnect by just bringing all the employees into a room, let the chancellor come in and talk about the vision for the next you know, year or two. There can be. It doesn't mean that there, there always is, but there can be a disconnect because there's no relationship between the new person hired and the chancellor. Or the CEO. Or yeah, the I think see, I, I think whatever. both have to happen, right? I yeah. think I mean the decision, like you say, will probably be made um, by by a small leadership team at the highest level. But the expectation then after that is that it's being communicated communicated effectively through the organization, through the appropriate channels, so that when the chancellor or the leader or the president or the whoever is leading the company or the organization, lead pastor. Um, when when they're telling everyone, it it really shouldn't catch anyone off guard. Right. I, I don't think it should be the first time, particularly if it's negative. Right. Um, so what what is your advice to to those who are, um, you know, a concern I think that some of the top leaders would have in an organization is that, you know, you you pass the information to your yep. second in command and you lose a little bit maybe of the warmth or vision. It gets passed to the sec third, gets passed to the fourth. By the time it gets to the student body or by the time it gets to the people sitting in the pew. Some of that warmth and vision and passion gets lost. How do you keep it warm and vibrant through the levels? The way I do it is, um, well, one, it, it, what the question you're asking just proves how important the skill of communication is. Yeah. Um, you know, again, you get back to being a finance or accountant person, but communication is probably the most important skill I have and, and try to keep developed. Um, I think you communicate it uh, different, you know, it's whatever the issue is or whatever the, the new thing is, positive or negative, um, making sure that the people you're talking to understand how it affects them or how you as the leader think it affects them. You know, if we're talking about Let's just say we were talking about um, the universities doubling down on customer service. Everything uh, that deals with customer service and interaction with students is is our top priority. The way I see that kind of translating to my unit is okay, okay, guys. Um, I've got you know five leaders that report to me, uh, three men, two women, um, no, two men, three women. But I sit, I sit with them, and, and we talk about, okay, how does, this, how does this apply to our area? Some of us don't interact with students at all on a daily basis. So let's think about if, if, if the university's vision is we're doubling down on customer service, we know we interact with students in student accounts. When they want to know what their balance is or what they owe, we have a direct interaction with them. We know we directly interact with students with how we maintain the facilities. And we know we directly interact with students on how we manage the bookstore and the cafeteria, where they come to eat every day. A student probably doesn't know that we get a, got a clean audit for the past seven or eight years mm-hmm. and probably doesn't really care. It's important. It's a foundation of, of being a good organization to, to have the integrity and, and show the ability to be compliant. 
Um, a student probably doesn't know or care whether or not we had a balanced budget this past year or whether we managed the finances appropriately. They're going to judge their experience on the interactions we have with them. So if the, if the top level strategy is to double down on customer service, one, let's identify where we do that. Let's, inter let's identify where we have a part in that. And then let's think about how do, we, you know, how do we invest in that experience? Do we need more staff in those areas? Do we need to spend more money operationally in those areas? So um, that's not necessarily the same conversation I had at the cabinet level, but it's the same theme, it's the same message, and, and my job is to say, all right, all right, team, how does this apply to us? How do we want to strategize about implementing um, kind of a new edict or a new priority, and um, how do we see it affecting us? See, I think that's another one of those uh, reality versus myth of accounting yep. is the, the, the importance you place on communicating well. Yep. It's not just getting in a room and crunching numbers. Right. You've got to communicate yep. every single step of the way. You've got to communicate effectively, clearly, passionately right. uh, to keep your team on board and all moving in the same direction. Right. And that's a constant challenge. Yep. Yeah. What would you say right now, Josh, is one of your most challenging uh, roadblocks you know, to getting to the next level? Uh, personally, professionally, just kind of where you push yourself right now, uh, where you are, you know, in your position. How? What do you see as kind of in your way that you're trying to navigate around, work through, uh, take apart, put together in a different way? What's What's going on? Um. Personally, I think I probably need to do, you know, if I'm being candid, I probably need to do a better job at uh, work-life balance and yep. um, drawing boundaries between work and and personal um, are you talking about bringing some of that work home and learning how not to do that or are you talking about just so yeah many extra I mean hours yeah to, to, to some degree just um, so I mean my job's one that's going to require a lot of hours and it's what I signed up for and and I get it um, and and don't have a problem with it but I think I found myself recently um, not drawing clear boundaries about when I'm going to do that, when I'm going to bring. So bringing work home is, is probably a reality. Yeah. You know, on average, I'll probably work 45 to 50 hours in the office and then another 10 to 15 at home. But um, deciding that that 10 to 15 at home is going to be after everyone goes to bed right. as opposed to letting it kind of mix and linger into dinner or mm -hmm. time where the kids are there and I'm on a computer or, you know, so, so – um, personally getting a little bit better at drawing the clear boundaries of when when my time with them it's it's a hundred percent with with my family and, right. and when I'm working it's a hundred percent on that as opposed to letting things get a little gray um, that's something I can work on personally want to work on personally and, and yeah I think to I do think that. I think we're all pretty much there and I, yep. I can't say that for everybody of course but that's something I have to constantly work through. You know, when do you when do you turn it off? Right. You know, because if you're if you're a leader and you've got passion inside and you've got yep. a vision for the next level and you know you have goals and you know dreams and all yep. these different things, how do you flip that off? You, you know, can. It, it's yeah, it's present with you, you everywhere you go. Yep. You know, and I can be in a conversation with my family or friends or whatever, and I'm still thinking in the background all these things I want to talk to people about or yep. or write or speak on or, or whatever or mm -hmm. read and yep. it's not really a drag for me you know I enjoy it I love leadership I love communication I love learning I love reading so I don't see it as you know a, a necessarily a downer right but when you're interacting with your kids and you're interacting with your spouse and they've got their dreams and goals and things right. they want to talk about sometimes it can I, I sometimes I have been that downer to other people right. because the passion I have is not necessarily the passion they have. And you've got to learn how to turn that off or at least turn it down, fade right. it down so you can turn some other things up. You know? Well, and, and that's, that's a challenge. And you're right, too. Like the um, doing what I do for the university um, never feels like a, a burden. Right. You know, it always feels like something I'm excited about solving the next problem or, or getting with the team and working through the next challenge or and that is the uh, nature yeah, of a leader right yeah. so i mean I, I the only time it feels a bit of a downer is when i can physically feel that um it's pulling time away from from yeah. my kids and my family you know right. like th then so what uh, do you what tell me something this will help those listening when do you when, how can you tell that what's a symptom what's what What's something you just know you can tell, okay, I need to unplug here? Um, 
<laughs> Usually it's my wife telling me I need okay. to unplug. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, again, I, I could come home from work, grab a bite to eat, and get back on the computer and plow through just more things to, to look through, to think about, to strategize about. And um, I'd, I'd enjoy that just as much as I would sitting in front of the TV yeah. or, you know, going outside. But, um, you know, I guess you can feel it when if if I decide to do that in a time that should be Scarlett's or Zadie's, those are my daughter, yeah. um, time that should be theirs where – um, I'm trying to get this email out, and and I've got one of them hanging on my neck, and the other one like crawling across my lap, and I'm, you know, I'm getting frustrated. That might be a good time to just stop. Yeah, and I'm getting and frustrated, right? I'm getting frustrated that I can't get this out. But what I should be frustrated about is that I've got the computer in front of me at all, yeah. you know, and yeah. um, I've got to do a better. So that's job what you're that. talking about, the boundaries, just yeah. making very clear boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think most of us, you know, struggle with that, and yeah. and you learn. You know, you learn some of that over time. And I'm coming from a different perspective because my kids are older now. I've got a 24-year-old, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, actually, and almost 19-year-old. So those days pass quickly, Josh. Right. And uh, there'll be a day where they won't be crawling around and right. they'll be busy doing other things. So, you know, you, you, you learn with time how to balance those things and realize there'll, there'll be a day where you can give a lot more hours right. to those things uh, as far as leadership goes because you won't have – the kids around those days go by really quickly. When you're in them, they seem like they last forever. But right. I'll tell you what, when you get through them, you look back and you think, wow, that was fast. Right. That was a really quick season. Uh, let me ask you a question about other leaders. Um, what are some leadership traits you wish you could see um, and find in more people? Because you're a passionate guy. You love to take, as we've just been talking about, risks and you know, looking into the future and making things better. Um, you ever just talk to maybe some young leaders or some, some people, recent, you know, newly hired and just go, wow, I just wish you guys understood this or could get this. You just, some traits you wish you could find. Um, I, I, two come to mind that, that are really important to me. One is um, at least a willingness, if not a desire, to, um, f- for accountability. You know, um, nothing gets me more excited as a leader than someone who who um, really desires a plan, a work plan for themselves and for their, their departments that they can be held accountable to. Something that's um, that, that's visionary, that's strategic, but it's also very measurable, mm-hmm. where we can we can stop along the way and say and see what we've done clearly and and can measure what we've done. Um, the folks that report to me that that uh, desire and seek that out it's just a huge um, it's a huge weight off my shoulders but it's just very attractive as a leader to have an employee who who thinks that way and, and kind of desires that type of interaction with their supervisor um, because um, people's I think it's a lot of times it's people's tendency to hide or or thrive in in kind of the fuzzy space where um, well, we don't have any clear objectives, so I can't, you know, I can't do anything wrong if I don't know where I'm going. And so, again, it's it's on me as the leader to set those objectives for the different functional areas that report to me. But man, when um, when someone when when the the script gets flipped and someone comes to me and, and that's kind of that's kind of the way they're thinking to begin with, and that's what they want. Um, it's it's a it's a pretty good indicator of what type of person you have that you have working for you. So so what you unfortunately see often are people um, who are in some kind of position, uh, just kind of waltzing, just kind of you know moving forward somewhat, but there's not a lot of measurable. Uh, I, I think goals. that's a, a pretty natural tendency, yeah. and I, I don't say it's. I don't know how, how often it happens, but it, I think it's a pretty natural tendency that without – and so I, I, if those things happen, I put that more on the leader than the employee. Okay. I'm just saying uh, that's a that's a great trait to see from someone that right. does report to you. But if, if someone's kind of wandering in the fuzzy space of I don't know what I'm responsible for, so I'm responsible for nothing, and um, that's the leader's fault. You know, I think that's the leader's responsibility to make sure objectives are clear, strategies are clear, how we're going to measure it is clear. 
Right. And um, some people respond well to that, right. and other people don't. So right. I'm hearing you say that you love to see the trait in a leader when you can put some measurement, measurable goals in them, yep. and they respond well to that. Right. And they enjoy being uh, evaluated. Right. And he, here's how you can improve. And right. did you reach your goal? And they're right. okay with saying, no, I didn't, but I want to do it next month right. or whatever. Versus the person who doesn't necessarily want those right. measurable goals around them. They just want to just get up and just do their best, quote unquote, right. each day. And then, and then, yeah, and then you get to the end of a year or a cycle and, and you're left with this really difficult discussion about what was your, what, what was it your best? Yeah. You know, how do we define what your best was? And since we didn't talk about it at the beginning, it, that's a really dis- tough discussion for both the employee and the, the supervisor or the, you know, the leader. Um, and so not being clear up front makes makes a discussion on the back end about whether you did your best and what your best looks like almost right. impossible. Yeah. yeah. Well, Josh, if you had a room filled with young leaders, uh, you had you know, a bunch of 20-year-olds or so sitting in a room, and uh, you had a chance to get up front and speak to them, what would you say? What are a few things that you'd say, listen, guys, I know I know where you are. You know, I, I was there, mm-hmm. and you've got your career in front of you. Yeah. Here are some things that, that I want to deposit into you. Here are some yeah. things I want to give you. Um, number one, I would say the, the most important piece of advice I could give is be willing to ask the embarrassing question mm-hmm. or the embarrassing questions. Be willing to be that person, um, the one who – in a, in a group setting, ask out loud the question that you probably should already you probably should already know the answer to. Maybe you should already know the answer to it. There's there's absolutely no shame in asking a good question, um, and it served me so well. And, and continue to ask questions until you understand what it is you set out to understand when you ask the first question. Um, I think people often get timid in group settings. I think they get, um, especially in a room of peers where, you know, everyone's kind of working in the same industry or same space, and, you know, maybe you go to a conference or a place where you're supposed to be learning, but you're around a a bunch of people at similar universities or similar organizations have a similar title as you, and if I ask this question out loud, that means that they, you know, they know that I don't know something Mm -hmm. I should. All that is... um, just so misguided thinking. Yeah. Um, I have been the guy who goes to the conference, picks out ahead of time which tracks I'm going to attend, you know, mm-hmm. which speakers I'm going to, and I go to the front row, and and especially earlier in my career at ECSU when I came over and, and was in a role that I didn't have much experience in, and just ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. And um, the little bit of an embarrassment you might feel or the little bit of you know, kind of looking sideways and wondering if people wonder if you know what you're doing. I mean, it, it just pales in comparison to being the person who knows what they're talking about after that yeah. after that series of questions. And the reality is there's another 10 or 15 or more sitting more, in that room with the exact same question you have. Every time. But you stood up and you yep. led the way. Yep. And sometimes just by doing that alone will draw people to you because yep. they're like, hey, there's a guy that – you know, is confident in his ignorance. In other words, you know, yeah, I'm sure I feel absolutely fine. The fact that I don't sure. know something I'm here to learn. That's the reason I'm here. Sure. So you would tell those young leaders, Hey, stay passionate, stay hungry to learn. That's exactly right. Ask the questions, read the books, talk to the people, yep. you know, do whatever you got to do to figure things out. Right now. Yeah. yeah and, and again, I've been on the, you know, I've been on at every level of my career at ECSU. I've been in circles of peers lots of times at other institutions where I was new to the role and had to ask questions that probably some people in the room were thinking, well, you know, you're the vice chancellor of business and finance. You should already know the answer in that question. Or you're the budget director. Or yeah. you're the director of contracts. and Why don't you know that? I'm, my advice to young leaders would be it doesn't matter right. whether you should have. You're in the role, and um, if you don't learn it quick, you won't be in the role. That's right. So learn it. You know, by whatever means necessary, by whatever embarrassment is necessary. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, let me change direction a little bit. We're kind of moving away from your professional side there at ECSU and and the leadership roles you do. Occasionally here at Forest Park, you lead worship, and you you do a great job getting up and and singing and playing as well. Uh, Explain to us just the the value because, I mean, you're, you're a busy person. 
like you just said, you know, you're mm-hmm. 45 hours, sometimes 50 hours in the office, another 10, 15 at home sometimes. Obviously, that's 60, 60 plus hours a week. You're busy. You've got two small kids. You've got a wonderful wife. You guys are busy in all kinds of different things. She's doing her thing as well. But yet you find time to occasionally lead hundreds of people on a weekend into singing and mm-hmm. worship and reflection. What, what's the value of that? You've Obviously, it's got to be pretty high value to say yes to it. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, it, you know, it, it's my discipline, right? It's, it's, um, it's the time that I, that I give to God that if I was staring down the barrel of a week, I know I'd want to give him that time, and then and then other priorities would take and and shove it out of the way. And so, um, committing to the worship team um, on average, probably two weekends a month is is what yeah. I average here in some capacity. Um, forces into my calendar the decision I would I would make in clear conscience yeah. if that makes sense yeah. so um, y- you put the verse up on on the screen either this past week or the week before about um, where Paul says in Romans the things I want to do yeah. I don't do the things I wish I didn't do I do those um, so being part of the worship team allows me to to kind of have the discipline and structure to to make God a priority because I know in clear conscience that's what I'd want to do, but but you know the world takes over sometimes, sure. and so so um, that's somewhat of a boundary. It is. Yeah, it I'm is. going yeah. to give this time every month right. and use my talent and skills outside the office, yep. play an instrument, sing. I'm going to do it. Right. So I'm going to put myself on a schedule. I'm yep. going to commit to it. Yep. I've got a team looking at yep. me, so I've got to do it. You yep. know, they're they're counting on me. Yeah. Yep. Now, so so that's the discipline side yep. of it, and that's um, that makes it sound like more more like work than it does uh, worship. But but I guess what I'd explain about leading worship here is it's um, it's it's really one of the joys of my walk with the Lord. It's it's one of the, my favorite parts of the week or the month, um, and and something that the members of the congregation here at church probably either don't know or don't expect or don't think about is how much they impact us as yeah. leaders on the stage. So um, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing experience to lead people, and you can, you know, you get the purview of, of seeing everyone in, in this church worship. Yeah, you know, different you, ages, different places in life. And you're no, just you see, I mean, you see chains breaking. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a, in a service, you see walls falling, you see chains breaking, you see it on people's faces. And um, I know that a lot of people come to this church for the worship, um, but people impact us just as much yeah. as we impact them. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Josh, you uh, are you a movie guy, song guy, both? Probably more movie than song. Yeah. Okay. But both. Favorite movie. Doesn't have to be the favorite, but give me a give me a maybe a movie. Uh, Gladiator. Gladiator. With Russell Crowe. Yeah, Glad- favorite movie. Great movie. Yeah. Why? Um, I just I love the story. I love the, you know, the fact that he was on top and then kind of wrongfully made his way all the way to it, close to the bottom as you can make it, and and you know you get to watch for two and a half hours of how he kind of kind of fights his way back through pretty terrible circumstances yeah. uh societal boundaries and you know when he's standing there in the arena and gets asked to take his mask off that's probably yeah. the best scene and one of the best scenes in any yeah. movie so yeah now are you you watch a lot of movies yeah sure okay. yeah. M- more animated recently okay. than, than, <laughs> than <laughs> probably because of your girls right? yeah, yeah. So you get one daughter who's four <laughs> and the other one who's almost two um, and you probably watch the same movie over and yeah, over and whatever over Netflix right, has this right. month is is our favorite. Yeah. yeah so. All right, Josh. Uh, one other question. What? Just a very light question. Sure. Uh, what? What would you never get tired of eating? Because hmm. you told me about your mom's cooking yeah. and, and what you look forward to, and I'm just curious. What? What would you just? Man, you'd never get tired of that. Probably. Um, Probably her standard, like w- when we go and eat at her house on a Sunday uh, for lunch, she does like a, just a full spread. of uh, Most of the time it's like hamburger steak and gravy and mashed potatoes and green beans or whatever fresh vegetable from the summer and chicken casserole and some type of dessert and rolls and mm. sweet tea. And 
So probably I would just say my mom's cooking what, what she cooks on a on a standard Sunday. How often do you get a chance week. to go to her house? She probably cooks for me, my family, my brother's family, and my sister's family. So, so the group of us, which is four, eight, twelve, fourteen of us, um, one to two times a month. Oh my goodness! Well, if you've got that many people coming twice a month, one more person will not matter. Right? So I might just invite myself. I might, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I would enjoy that. She'll have enough. Yeah, she always does. That's great. Well, Josh, thank you for your time today. Sure. Uh, you're doing a great job at ECSU and. Uh, leading the university, helping to lead, along with some other great leaders, uh, trying to lead it forward. I know it's had a lot of challenges recently, but we're anticipating the best days for ECSU are ahead. And they are ahead because they've got some people like you working there and serving and taking some risks, calculated risks, and doing the best you can to, to move the university forward. So we're looking forward to what's going to happen next there. We are too. Yeah. yeah, and wish you all the best in what you do, and thank you so much for leading here at Forest Park in so many different capacities, and your faithfulness and your dedication and leading our people into worship and, and le- helping to lead our band, et cetera. So, well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you, it. You are welcome. We're glad to have you a part, and thanks for taking your very valuable time because I know you've got a lot of things on your plate today. And you've got a lot of things to do. And as soon as we're finished here, you'll head back and get some more things done. Sure. But you gave your time here. And there will be some people uh, who will hear this podcast and, and want to kind of look you up, maybe ask them some questions. I don't know. Sure. What's a, what's a good way for people to reach you, how, how to contact you? Sure. Uh, I think the best way is to reach out via email. Okay. Um, you can look me up. I'm on the university's website. Uh, right. But we'll, we'll put a couple links, too, right there in the podcast for people to get. But, sure. Uh, what's but your I, email address? Uh, J.L. Lassiter at ecsu.edu. You can con- okay. contact me directly in my work email. That would yeah. be fine. So if you had somebody else out there who's got even some, I don't mean personal accounting questions, but I mean, you know, if they've got some things, maybe they're doing a business, they're starting some things, they've got some questions about sure. how do you take these risks, uh, you'd be happy to entertain those questions? Would love or? to talk okay. through some of that. Sure. Yeah, great. All right, Josh, thank you very much, man. Have a wonderful day, and thanks for being a part of the Imperfect Leader Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Imperfect Leader Podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning, please go by iTunes and give us a five-star rating and share this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also, I'd love to interact with you. You can reach me by visiting scottneal.me or like my page on Facebook at facebook.com slash scottneal online. I'd love to know what you're thinking and answer any questions you have.